Science Sidelined by the Disinformation Playbook The Fake Using a play we call The Fake, unscrupulous corporations try to hide the potential harm of a product behind counterfeit science. This can take the form of ghostwriting journal articles or pushing company scientists to cherry-pick data or rig experiments in ways that suggest favorable results. This is just one of the plays that powerful interests use to sideline science. The Blitz Using a play we call The Blitz, industry lobbyists try to silence, intimidate, or discredit any scientist whose research shows the harm caused by a product. Scientists can be harassed, denied funding and advancement, threatened with transfer or dismissal, and have their reputations questioned. The Diversion Using a play we call The Diversion, industry lobbyists or other paid surrogates try to create the appearance of uncertainty where little exists, diverting attention away from the harm caused by a product. Lobbyists, public relations firms, or front groups can spread confusion and doubt by quoting bogus studies or making inaccurate claims. The Screen Using a play we call The Screen, corporations try to boost their image by hiding behind a university's scientific reputation. The corporation can fund the work of individual university scientists or an entire department with strings attached that influence the direction the university's research takes. This kind of financial arrangement can lead to bias in favor of the industry. The Fix Using a play we call The Fix, industry lobbyists try to win political support for scientifically questionable policies or weaken support for scientifically strong policies through inappropriate influence on decision-makers. The corporation may contribute to a politician's campaign, delay or block policies with legal challenges, or take advantage of the revolving door between industry and government. To learn about the latest real-life example, other plays in the disinformation playbook, and how you can prevent science from being sidelined, go to ucsusa.org playbook. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of this alliance of medical professionals and their supporters. And we all watched all of those plays unfold over the last three years. Plays that were so cleverly displayed in the video that we all just watched. Plays that we never imagined would be used against the medicines that saved the lives of people who came down with COVID-19, or the doctors who successfully were using those medicines to save lives in hospitals, as well as outpatient treatments, and even for prevention. I can remember, and I'll bet all of you who were with us from the beginning, remember when our own Dr. Pierre Corey said, whoa, look at this, this Disinformation Playbook is a plan that's been used before by pharma and their PR machine to target and destroy all kinds of safe and effective, but off-patent, inexpensive medicines, remedies that save lives, but compete with the latest newfangled drug, whatever that they're bringing to market. Well, somebody gave that Disinformation Playbook to Pierre when he saw it being used against Pierre and the FLCCC, just as it had been used against his work on vitamin D. Well, we have that doctor here tonight, but Pierre, maybe you want to tell this story uh, exactly how it happened, how, you know, yeah. you got the message. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, uh, Professor William Grant's going to come on in a few, but I just want to say a few words about um how I got to know him. And I've said, I've, I've actually uh, talked about this in interviews before, but I got an email one day about four months after my testimony. Um, everyone in the FLCCC knows what our lives were like at the time. Everything was going sideways. Our papers were being retracted. Nothing made sense. We were getting hit on in the media. And I received an email one day 
that said, Dear Dr. Corey, um, what they've been doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And it included a link to the disinformation playbook, which is what that opening video was about. And I clicked on the link, I read the article, and it was like my mind exploded. Like everything made sense. <laughs> I remember it was happening. I could tie it to that playbook. I had dozens of examples of each and every tactic that they were doing. And that kind of inspired me. I said, I, I didn't have a book in mind at the time, but I said, I am documenting. I almost wanted to, I, think, I thought of it as a lecture at first because it was such a glaring and unfortunately depraved example of what disinformation tactics do when industries deploy them. So that, that was one thing. And that's how I got to be, uh, you know, kind of pen pals with uh, Professor Grant. And, um, and he's one of the most published researchers on vitamin D. He's been fighting that war on vitamin D for decades. So that's one thing I want to say. But the last thing I want to say is, is I don't even know if you can call it humorous. Uh, you know, I use the term clown world a lot. But when I was just about to turn in my book, my co-writer, Jenna McCarthy, we realized that we needed permission to use graphics from the article called the Disinformation Playbook, which was written and posted by an organization called the Union for Concerned Scientists. And Jenna reached out to them for permission to use their graphics. And at first they were like, sure, no problem. But within one day, we got an irate email from someone from that organization saying, absolutely not, you cannot use anything from the article. And so then Jenna ended up talking to the person from the organization. And once they heard it was me, this controversial figure, they were like, no, you can't use anything. And which is really strange, because if you look at the video about the blitz, how they harass sciences, they make them seem incredible. The organization who wrote the article is literally believing the, the mass media campaign against me and would not let me use uh, the article in my book. And I, I just... I just give up at that point. But anyway, I just I, I just thought those two anecdotes were were important to tell. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the lecture tonight. Well, let me I'd like to tell the audience a little bit about our Dr. William B. Grant, who has a Ph.D. in physics uh, from UC Berkeley, whose bio is way, way, way too long to recite here. But know that he's had a 30 year career in laser remote sensing of atmospheric constituents, including 15 years at NASA's Langley Research Center, where he studied the effects of acid rain and ozone on eastern forests. And he began health studies. And he's got a story to tell you how he went made that leap across to the health studies, looking into the relationship of diet with Alzheimer's in about 1997, and later studied how cancer mortality rates were affected by geography, environmental factors like the amount of sunshine, which brings us to vitamin D and all the wonderful things that he's learned about vitamin D, which he's going to share with us. He's going to talk to Pierre and Paul is here tonight, Paul Merrick, our wonderful Dr. Merrick. So welcome. We're delighted to have you with us. We've gotten the message from our doctors that vitamin D is very beneficial in the COVID treatment protocols that they've put together and other treatment protocols now as well. But you've been on this from the from the very beginning. So how did how did you make that leap from acid rain into looking at health issues? So thanks for the introduction. Uh, I was um, doing a Sierra Club project in Virginia on acid rain and ozone, learning from a forestry professor how to do ecological studies, which is where you look at populations defined geographically and you average the health outcomes and the risk factors by population and do statistics. Um, I finished that project in 1996, and when I was in New Zealand on a NASA field trip, I read the local paper and found out about a study in Hawaii in which they reported that the Japanese-American men in Hawaii had two and a half times as much Alzheimer's disease as native Japanese. Now, I studied Alzheimer's disease a bit, knew about mercury in the brain, um, and I uh, knew about mercury in the forest soils. So I said, well, the reason has to be the American diet. Mm. And I can prove that doing an ecological study. So I got the data for Alzheimer's prevalence in 11 countries. I got the macro dietary factors and quickly showed that uh, total fat and total caloric supply were highly correlated with, with Alzheimer's disease. If they had more ocean fish in diet, that reduced the risk a little bit. If they had a rice-based diet, like in Southeast Asia, very low rate of Alzheimer's. 
Um, I wrote it up, went to the University of Kentucky, presented it. They said, fine, we'll publish it. I then hired a press agent, went to the National Press Club uh, and gave a press conference. And lo and behold, I, I made the national news on June 17th, 1997 um, on Dan Rather and CNN. So yeah. here I was, an atmospheric scientist at NASA, just plugging along. And all of a sudden, I write the first paper on diet and Alzheimer's. And so I realized I had a new calling uh, to really do health studies, uh, not, not just atmospheric studies. And um, so in 1999, when the new Atlas of Cancer Mortality Rates came out, and I saw the patterns, which I'll show in this uh, webinar, I said, aha. At first, I thought it was going to be diet. But then I, I found that Cedric Garland and his brother Frank had already shown that, no, it was not diet. It was UVB. And so I got the NASA UVB data and started making correlations and the rest is history. So we'll talk about that later. Well, I'm going to jump off and let you doctors talk and present on this. Um, we have nurses on already answering questions that you folks at home post into Q&A. And I'm going to use some of them and bring them back to Dr. Grant and our doctors, because this is a fascinating subject. So I'll see you later. Take it away. Okay. Well, Bill, why don't you go ahead and share your slides and we'll, we'll chat after. Okay, if I have a few first uh, slide. Okay, so yes, this is the uh, topic for today, vitamin D and cancer and COVID and the disinformation playbook. And at the very end, I'll discuss diet and Alzheimer's disease. Next. So in the, um, I want to show how advances in the understanding of vitamin D's effects after 2000 led Big Pharma to use the disinformation playbook to discourage interest in vitamin D. So until around 2000, Vitamin D was mainly known for calcium absorption and bone health. But in the early 2000s, several important advances were made regarding vitamin D's effects for cancer, influenza, pregnancy risk, and cardi cardiovascular disease. Next slide. The, for cancer, I did this is my ecological study. Uh, on the right, you see the cancer mortality rate uh, for colon cancer by the 500 state economic areas. The red is high mortality rates up around 25 to 30 cases per 100,000 per year. Um, the blue is low around eight to 15 deaths per, per 100,000 per year. On the left is solar UVB doses for July 1992 measured from a, a, a NASA uh, satellite. The dark blue at the top is very low solar UVB in Canada. The pink and yellow in the lower uh, left is the high doses uh, due to the high surface elevation, the thinner stratospheric ozone in the west, and um, and then the uh, so you see there's an asymmetry in the UVB and asymmetry in the in the in the cancer mortality rates, and there's a very good match between the two. So what I showed was there were 13 types of cancer that had the this correlation between solar UVB and um, uh, 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 okay, and it was published first in cancer very quickly. When people said I had uh, skipped a few steps like showing the confounding factors, I redid the analysis, submitted to nine journals, which all rejected it because I guess they realized that vitamin D might interfere with, with the cancer industry. So it was finally published in a, a Greek journal as a result of a, uh, a conference in Germany. Next. Uh, John Connell in 2006 linked influenza to low solar UVB and vitamin D by referring to this figure from Hope Simpson. The top panel shows that um, influenza is uh, very common in winter in the Northern Hemisphere. The bottom panel shows it's very common in the, in the Southern Hemisphere in their winter. And then he uh, that sort of sparked the interest in vitamin D and respiratory tract infections. Next. Uh, vitamin D reduces adverse pregnancy and birth outcomes. And a study in um, uh, 20, 2007 reported that um, uh, a 20 nanogram per milliliter or 50 nanomole per liter lower 25 OH concentration in early pregnancy doubled the risk of preeclampsia. Next. And then a major review was published by Michael Hollick in 2007. He noted that brain, prostate, breast, and colon tissues, among others, as well as immune cells, respond to the hormonal metabolite of vitamin D called 125-dihydroxyvitamin D through controlling gene expression. 
So in this case, it is a hormone just like estrogen, progesterone, and, and testosterone. This uh, review now has 19,545 Google Scholar citations. And note that it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Just remember that journal. I'll come back to it later. Uh, next. And then a, a cardiovascular disease incidence study over 5.4 years versus serum 25 OHD found that participants with less than 15 nanograms per milliliter had a 62% increased risk of incident cardiovascular events compared to those, to those with greater than uh, 15 nanograms per milliliter. So you see the momentum is building. Um, uh, next. So how did Big Pharma respond? Well, first it appointed a committee in 2009 to review vitamin D recommendations and reported in 2011 that our recommended daily allowances of 600 IE international units of vitamin D per day for those ages 1 to 70 years and 800 IU per day for ages 71 and older would be re uh, recommended, and that a serum 25 OHD of at least 20 nanograms per milliliter would be recommended. Uh, so this was published in uh, 2011 with uh, uh, Dr. Ross and Joanne Manson. Uh, next, about the same time, Michael Hollick, a medical doctor and PhD at Boston University, uh, published a study he led with, for the Endocrine Society, recommending that all adults who are vitamin D deficient achieve a blood level of 25 OHD above 30 nanograms per milliliter or 75 nanomoles per liter, and a maintenance therapy of 1,500 to 2,000 IU per day. So he's recommending a 50% higher 25 OHD and about, uh, more than double the uh, vitamin D dose. Uh, next. So then the next thing the NIH, did, Big Pharma did uh, through the NIH was fund a major vitamin D and omega-3 randomized controlled trial. This trial enrolled 25,000 participants between 2011 and 2014. It was recommended to give 2,000 IU per day of vitamin D3, which is too low, or placebo to the, those in the, in the treatment arm. Uh, and notice that the mean baseline for those in the vitamin D treatment arm was 31 nanograms per milliliter, which is higher than the average uh, 25 OHD in, in, even in summer in the United States, and well above where you might expect to find most of the effects of vitamin D. And so in a median follow-up period of 5.3 years, no significant difference in cancer incidence was found between vitamin D and placebo arms. Uh, however, the secondary findings, which were kept hidden in the abstract and in all the public um, uh, press releases by Joanne Manson, it turns out that cancer incidence was 25% lower for BMI less than 25 kilograms per meter squared and for blacks, and that cancer mortality rates were 25% lower for all participants um, in the um, vitamin D um, treatment arm. And this was published in, you guessed it, New England Journal of Medicine. So now they've gone from promoting vitamin D to disparaging vitamin D. Next. So that's what I call the tyranny of the evidence pyramid. Uh, this is a typical pyramid that shows you sort of a base in the green at the bottom. And then as you march up the pyramid, you get stronger evidence. Um, you go to case control and cohort studies, observational studies, then randomized controlled trials like the VITAL study. And then above that, you start having critically appraised individual articles and, and, and systematic reviews. Well, the, there are major problems in, for clinical trials for do, nutrients. For vitamin D, trials are based on vitamin D dose, just like in drug trials, not on 25 OHD concentration, which bear, varies by individual and doesn't even have a direct relationship between vitamin D dose. And these trials often have high baseline 25 OHD, and they're given small vitamin D doses. And so at the result, they say, see, uh, we did an RCT just like for drugs, but vitamin D doesn't work. Well, this is a study designed to show it doesn't work. Next. So 
So here's how vitamin D acceptance was delayed by Big Pharma using the disinformation playbook. So the fake, they use poorly designed vitamin D RCTs. The blitz, they ran a, a hit piece on Michael Hollick in the New York Times in 2018. Uh, he's the most well-known vitamin D expert in the United States, if not the world. The diversion, there's even poor interpretations of observational studies regarding not only vitamin D, but, but uh, dietary factors like meat. The screen, uh, universities have published to study drugs and ignore vitamin D. And newspapers, turns out, are told to ignore vitamin D. And finally, the fix. There's a well-known revolving door between big pharma uh, and the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH. There's been regulatory capture of our medical system in the United States. And I published this online on October 1st, 2018. Next. So I started watching the FLCC webinars in early 2021 after learning about them on Twitter. As Pierre uh, said, I emailed Pierre in March 2021 and told him that Big Pharma was doing was very, for ivermectin, very similar to what they've been doing regarding vitamin D for the past two decades. Next. Uh, so I, I back in 2020, I, I did start uh, studying uh, the role of vitamin D and uh, uh, and COVID. And within two months of starting my research, I got a study published in the in the journal Nutrients. This is an open access, easy to publish in, vitamin D uh, friendly journal. And what I recommended is that people consider taking 10,000 IU per day of vitamin D3 to rapidly raise 25 OHD concentrations, followed by 5,000 IU per day. The goal should be to raise 25 OHD concentrations above 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. And if they get COVID, uh, start treating with high doses of vitamin D. Next. So Big Pharma uh, blocked the information on vitamin D and COVID. Like I said, the mass media were effectively blocked from presenting information on vitamin D and for, for prevention or treatment of COVID-19 or any other adverse health outcome. Social media had restrictions on mentioning vitamin D and COVID. And of course, physicians like Paul and, and Pierre were, uh, were, were discouraged from recommending vitamin D. Next. Now, their vitamin D has been very effective in reducing COVID incidence and adverse outcomes. A website posts vitamin D for COVID-19 studies. They currently have 116 COVID, uh, treatment studies and 186 uh, sufficiency studies. The treatment studies found that uh, uh, treat, uh, cases were reduced by um, uh, 15%. Uh, mortality rate um, uh, is reduced by 36%. And um, ICU admission is reduced by 47%. So this is the end of my presentation on uh, vitamin D. Okay, the primary findings of this public paper was published yesterday and it's open access that diets that inf increase inflammation and insulin resistance increase of Alzheimer's disease, just like uh, is the case for type two diabetes. And it turns out that Alzheimer's disease is often called type two, type three uh, di uh, diabetes. So foods that increase risk include meat, especially red and processed meat, ultra-processed foods like um, sugar and white flour. Uh, eating those foods can result in obesity, which is a major risk factor for type 2 diabetes, mellitus, and Alzheimer's disease. Foods that reduce risk include whole grains, legumes, colorful fruits and vegetables, nuts, coffee, and olive oil. Next and final slide shows a healthy eating pyramid, and you see the bottom shelf has all these beautiful, colorful uh, fruits and vegetables. The next um, uh, shelf up has a lot of whole grains. And then you have the protein sources and finally olive oil at the top. That's my presentation. Great. Paul, does it sound familiar? Um, just barely. <laughs> so <laughs> Dr. Grant, it seems like vitamin D has such across-the-board benefit in terms of Alzheimer's disease, in terms of cancer, in terms of respiratory infection, in terms of COVID. What do you think makes vitamin D so special? What makes it stand out as having such dramatic effects? 
Well, because it acts as a gene, as a hormone, and because the body can easily make vitamin D uh, through the skin, uh, it can store it. It stores it as 25-hydroxy vitamin D in the muscles during winter. So wintertime levels do not fall below uh, about two, two-thirds of what they were in the summer for most people. Uh, but every gene, every cell in the body, every organ in the body has vitamin D receptors coupled to the nucleus in the, in the cells. And so if you have enough vitamin D, and enough vitamin D means your 25-OH, which is what you measure when you draw blood to measure your vitamin D level, this goes circulating around the body. And as the organs and cells need uh, vitamin D to help them fight cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, influenza, something else, they grab that 25-OH and have and they can have an enzyme to convert that to 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, and then start the mechanism to 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 get the uh, get the mechanism moving to stop stop the disease in their particular organ and particular cell. And um, so it's just a very efficient system. It's been honed over millennia, and the body um, has learned how to use it. And, and it, it took us till year 2000 to start realizing we had this powerful hormone at our command if we knew how to raise our vitamin D levels and, and use it. Now, since a lot of we have in modern times, we work indoors, we wear sunscreen, we're, we're afraid now of skin cancer, melanoma, um, uh, and so on. So we need help by taking vitamin D supplements. And of course, uh, we've been told that we take too much, you might get kidney stones, which is nonsense. If you get too much sun, you might get skin cancer, which is very unlikely. So it's just, you know. So would you would you recommend that everyone on this planet takes vitamin D? Uh, yes, yes. And, and and Bill, you know the interesting thing. Um, there seems to be a dose response in terms of certain illnesses, right? So from what I understand the literature around COVID, right, just in terms of mortality, the review papers show that if you're over 50 nanograms per deciliter, uh, no one dies from COVID if you have over 50. And then I've I've seen, and you and I have, uh, and Paul have had uh, different conversations where for cancer, if you're up around 100, uh, cancer doesn't happen. So can you make some comment around the, the dose, different doses to protect against various illnesses? Yeah. Well, um, the, the most, most of the benefit occurs below 20 nanograms per milliliter, 15 nanomoles per liter for, for most diseases. But um, as you start going up, uh, well, there's a sort of a triage theory that as you start raising 25 hydroxyvitamin D or anything else in the body, you go to where it's most needed for immediate uh, survival. So if you get COVID, you've got to really put your attention in COVID. You don't worry about the cancer you may be getting because that's a year or two or three down the road. So uh, you can, so the, 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 the dose you need for cancer is somewhat higher. But as you saw in the map of, of colon cancer, uh, there is quite a bit of difference in the mortality rates, um, even for the normal, uh, UVB doses in the United States. Um, but uh, in my case, I when I got COVID about a year ago, I had over 100 nanograms per milliliter. Hmm. And um, uh, at the age of 81, I had five days of COVID, including one night of sleeplessness because of a sore throat, but no real adverse effects. I, mean, I got a sore throat, later, a hoarse throat later, but uh, I didn't have the con- the the comorbid diseases that can greatly increase your risk of, of adverse effects from COVID. So, so I see a lot of people are asking about what's the optimal dose. So um, what would you say? And do you think people, sh- everyone should have their vitamin D level checked in order to see that you're taking the appropriate dose? Okay, I, I've done a lot of work with Grassroots Health and Vitamin D Council. And on grassrootshealth.net, uh, Dot org or, or I think or net, uh, they have a statement there signed by about forty uh, vitamin D researchers, who all recommended forty to sixty nanograms per milliliter. Um, they also will provide uh, a blood spot test, which may cost around sixty-five or seventy dollars. Now, in my opinion, 
um, it's not really necessary to take the test. If you want to take at least 4,000 to 5,000 IU per day of vitamin D, you can pretty much rest assured you're going to be up around 30, 40, 50 nanograms per milliliter. If you, um, if you want to sort of carefully find out where you're going to be, uh, you might want to take a test at the start of, of, of supplementing and then take it after two or three months to see where you are. And if you're not high enough, raise or you're too high, lower a bit. But I think the main thing is a lot cheaper to take vitamin D. A year supply maybe costs $10. The test costs maybe $70 or through your doctor, maybe more, maybe less. And there's very, you don't get kidney stones from, from taking vitamin D. Uh, you don't get high. Uh, there's a very interesting case in the uh, journal literature about a vitamin D and, and uh, uh, a vitamin uh, mineral guru who uh, found out about vitamin D around 2008, 2009. He started taking vitamin D and he, he put it in his powder. He told his manufacturer, put a thousand IU per day in the powder. Well, the manufacturer confused milligrams and micrograms. And one, one microgram of vitamin D is 40 international units. So the manufacturer put a million IU per day in the powder. He got very sick. He got bloody feet. He couldn't think straight. He had to cancel his lectures. They called him Michael Hollick. Michael Hollick did some tests and found it was a million IU per day in the, in the powder and that his serum 25 OHD was up to 900 nanograms per milliliter. Oh. Now, this is above the 40 to 60 we recommend. It was 900. When he came, so Michael helped him um, get rid of the excess vitamin D. When it came down to 400 IU per day, the hypercalcemia left. And the hypercalcemia, like I say, you, you, you know you're not feeling well if you get hypercalcemia. And you ask your doctor, why am I not feeling well? And he didn't die. Nobody's died. For, very, very few. Maybe one or two people died from an overdose of vitamin D. So... Um, I don't think there's much risk. There's a lot of benefits. And uh, I think everybody ought to be trying to get taking their 5,000 or maybe there's a doctor in, in uh, Ohio who treats his, his psychiatric patients with 10,000, 50,000 IU per day. And he's had good luck, no adverse effects. So um, the, the, again, it's the medical system wants to make you think there are adverse effects of high dose vitamin D so you keep your vitamin D level low so you get sick. So they can treat you. Yeah. I mean, clinically in my career, um, the few hypercalcemics that I've seen, it wasn't from vitamin D. It was from supplements like uh, excessive use of Tums and things like that. It's uh, excess calcium, not, not the vitamin D alone. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm sure there's questions for you, Bill. Uh, I mean, I love your talk. It, it's uh, and, and I also like the the beginning. Your your kind of uh, your career trajectory and transformation, and 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 then you're. I'm going to just say it again. You're the OG, as we call it, the original gangster in terms of the disinformation playbook. And I love that you wrote that article in 2018. And uh, if I haven't said it to you directly, I appreciate. That one two-line email for me really um, it, it it helped me make sense of a world that I couldn't make sense of. I, I just didn't understand why uh, you know Paul's research and my advocacy wasn't you know getting traction, and and it just made complete sense. And we've been I fighting see. that disinformation war ever since. I saw you were struggling, and I thought, well, I can I can help. You did. You did. Kevin, you did. You did. You know, th this is interesting. This might be misinformation. I don't know. There's a lot going on out there. But one of our viewers from Rumble, calls himself the truth provider, said, I keep seeing claims online that vitamin D3 is used as rat poison, colocalciferol. I will be interested to learn what the truth is. <laughs> okay. Is they use in very high doses for rats um, in order to help them absorb uh, arsenic. It helps absorb not only vitamin D, but it helps uh, calcium, I mean, perhaps magnesium, but also arsenic. And so they put arsenic with the vitamin D in the rat poison. But it's they're the giving arsenic them, that's the poison. So just right. in case somebody doesn't the know that. Oh. <laughs> okay. You know, um, one more point. Um, my last point on the disinformation is that. Bill, I'm sure you saw this, maybe you didn't, but somewhere around six months to a year ago, there was an article in Forbes 
and it had a headline which was really alarming and kind of attention-grim. It said, stop with the vitamin D already. And it was like an exclamation point. And I read the articles by like a science journalist. And he basically went through all of the diseases that vitamin D has been tested against. And in the article, he said, it works for nothing. You know, like rheumatoid arthritis and cancer and cardiovascular disease. And, you know, my, my, my interpretation of that article is that the literature, the published medical literature on vitamin D is so polluted with, you know, trials designed to fail that they always just counter anytime you show or publish a trial that vitamin D is effective and it protects against X or Y, they will then design a trial to show that it doesn't. And it just cancels everything out. And so if you're even like um, a committed researcher doing a systematic review, looking at all the trials and you sum up all of the evidence, it's canceled out. So vitamin D is worthless, according to the medical literature. And, and it's really that people don't understand that we've been having decades of disinformation. So I think, you, you know, your highlighting of disinformation, um, it, using the example of vitamin D, and I've used the example of ivermectin, it's really what my book is about, because uh, I thought ivermectin was a really good case example, just like vitamin D, but it, it's really important. And, and, and the problem is you're left with this with this really uncomfortable sense that you can't trust the published scientific literature on topics. Was a professor at Stanford University says 90% of published medical work is, is incorrect. Now, the reason that these in clinical trials are incorrect is because they're based on trials for drugs and also because they think it's unethical to have people in the placebo arm who aren't getting at least a little bit of vitamin D. And mm. since you really got to, should compare very, very low 25 OHD people with high 25 OHD people. And you cannot do that in the United States. Now, you go to Iran, they can. They can take people with 10 nanograms per milliliter in a pregnancy study and let them stay that way and then lift the others to 20 or 30 nanograms and show there's a tremendous difference. But uh, it's just, it's hard to get these. You've got to you've got to actually measure 25 OHD in all the participants at the beginning. You've got to give them enough vitamin D to raise them to high enough. You've got to measure it again and analyze the results based on that. There's an uh, almost a good example of doing that with a Tufts University uh, study on prediabetes and vitamin D, and they did show that um, that the people who in the, in the vitamin D treatment arm. For every 10 nanograms per milliliter of, of um, 25 OHD, they increased, they had a 25% reduction in, in, in diabetes incidence. So the question is, can you get enough vitamin D from sunshine? Um, uh, no. Or, or, because, or, or did you, do you really need to supplement? So okay. if people get enough sun, do you think that's adequate? Well, um, the the UVB UV also destroys vitamin D as well as producing vitamin D. So uh, there are a lot of feedback mechanisms. For example, if you go out in the summer, you start tanning. And that means you make less vitamin D every time you go out. But if you if you have the the vitamin D, the sun can also the UVA and part of the UVB can start destroying that vitamin D. And so if you look at the average levels in the United States and in, in England. The average goes up about 30 nanograms per milliliter in the summer for white Americans and 20 nanograms per milliliter in the, in the winter, taking the stored 25 OHD from, from the muscles. But if you want to get up, up to 40, 50, 60, you've got to take supplements. Uh, and while, while meat and fish and uh, so on uh, have vitamin D, it's only 200, 300 IU per day. So that's not going to do it. You've got to take supplements if you want to be high, especially in winter. Paul, well, is that th that's quite a more nuanced answer than uh, Mercola? Because we've had this discussion with Mercola, and Mercola doesn't he think that all you need is sun? Yeah, except that he spends most of his day naked outdoors at midday. In, so in, in, that, in Florida, in Florida, yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's just practically not not a feasible solution. Um, it seems there's no way around it, particularly in winter, uh, where you, you just can't get enough UVB. 
And especially in the dark skin, the African-Americans are very vitamin D deficient. And I published a paper with Bruce Ames and Walter Willett showing that they probably have a lot of extra disease because of their low vitamin D levels. Here's a question we have from Anna Ionesco who says, how can a vegetarian vegan get vitamin D if they don't absorb enough from the sun or work too much at the office? Can it be obtained from mushrooms placed under the UV lamp? I read that synthetic vitamin D is toxic, especially since it is enhanced with graphene. No, that, that's, that's nonsense. Well, no. Uh, yeah, no. UV, UVB irradiated mushrooms that turn dark do have some vitamin D2. Uh, there are also now plants, green plants, that have been genetically modified to produce a vitamin D3. So it's a more expensive form of vitamin D3, but it can be obtained. Um, I've always recommended against vitamin D2 because it's not the natural vitamin D. It doesn't raise 25 OHD as, as strongly. It doesn't have as good a reputation in reducing risk of disease, but dietable vegans who want to stay away from uh, vitamin D and, and don't go in the sun can either take, there are vitamin D2, D2 supplements, but there are also these vitamin D3 from, from green plants. Okay, we have so, a I mean, Betsy, from our point of view, see if you agree, Dr. Grant, um, vitamin D3 supplements are exceedingly safe, and there's really no reason not to take them. Um, whether you are vegan or a carnivore or a Mediterranean diet, whatever diet you follow, I think it just makes sense to take vitamin to take vitamin D three. Well, it's just like vegans have to take B twelve vitamins, uh, which is common in, in animal products. So, okay, here's somebody who a doctor who wants to know. Doctor Goodell says, "Do you recommend higher doses of vitamin D, like twenty to fifty? Uh, KI units per day for cancer patients who already have level 100 to 120. Well, that's probably high enough. Uh, I would, um, I mean, doctors are now starting to give um, cancer patients vitamin D. I think they often prescribe D2 because it's in the pharmacy, but you can get 50,000 IU vitamin D3 through the internet which is much cheaper uh, than the D3 through the pharmacy. So basically what I would say in answer to that is that for cancer, you probably want to target a vitamin D level of around 100. So you probably want a, a higher dose than you would just generally to prevent, to promote health and prevent COVID. And I think there's good, good uh, epidemiological data to support that. Yes, there are two very interesting papers recently. Michael Hollick wrote the editorial for one about finding that P3 uh, genetic variants affect survival in cancer. And those who had were taking vitamin D and had the, one of these variants had a very long survival and the others didn't. There's also another paper out recently showing that uh, people who kept their vitamin D up through uh, supplementing and taking um, um, uh, chemo had much higher survival rates than those who were not taking vitamin D. All right. Wendy Snyder wants to know, are all brands of vitamin D the same? For example, CVS brand or something else. What is the recommended vitamin D brand and where can you purchase? Do you need to take it with K2 or is it not necessary? Well, I think most brands of vitamin D are probably okay. Um, uh, K2, now there is a concern that that uh, maybe taking high-dose vitamin D and taking too much calcium can start putting calcium in the soft tissues like the arteries and not in the bones and teeth. So vitamin K2 helps modulate, helps put the, uh, the, um, the calcium where it belongs. But um, I've had other people say that they've been giving high dose for years and they don't have any effect like that. So I'm not, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Um, here is someone who says, um, Franz, uh, Fane Zimmerman says, my last blood test showed vitamin D level at 105. My doctor said it was too high. How high is too high? Well, you sort of indicated earlier, you didn't think there was too high, but um, how high is too high? And what does that do to the body, if anything? Thank you, she says. 
Well, the, the risk of hypercalcemia does increase, uh, say, above 150 or 200 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, but um, I, unless you get hypercalcemia, um, um, you might just want to reduce your calcium intake, but otherwise I don't think you have to worry about that. Like I said, mine was 105 and it got me through um, um, uh, COVID okay. Okay. Well, well, I have to ask, just because we're early treatment docs, uh, did you treat it with uh, any of our antiviral regimens that we've put out? Yeah, I did. I actually had some of the horse medicine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, here's a good one. Denise says, uh, for those of us who live in the North, do you recommend using a UVB sun lamp in the winter? Yes, that would be, it could be helpful. There are some indications of other benefits of UVB and UVA from sunlight, such as uh, putting more nitric oxide in the blood from the nitric nitrate stores under the skin. Um, so there are some advantages um, and there are some uh, inexpensive home use UVB lamps available on the web. All right, here's a question from Nancy who wants to know how vitamin D affects Lewy body dementia. Do you know? No, sorry. Okay. Irma Gonzalez says, I read recently that big pharmaceuticals corporations are buying up the major supplement brands. Can you shed any light on this? Is it because you can find cures for many health issues via these over-the-counter supplements? You know anything about the market? No, it's probably like the big seed companies buying the little seed companies. They want to have a monopoly on the market. In Europe, they have the uh, whatever the uh, somehow the the regulation of vitamins and make it very difficult to buy vitamin D. You have to go to the pharmacy to buy over a thousand IU per day and so on. All right. Um, Laura Chamberlain asked, shall we raise the amount of K2 that we take if we have to take extremely high doses of vitamin D, such as 50,000 IUs? Well, it might be helpful, but you might want to look into natokinase as a source of um, vitamin K2. All right. And Gerald Quinn wants to know, how is vitamin D manufactured? Do you know? Uh most of it comes from sheep's wool lanolin, which is uh, UVB irradiated and purified. From sheep's wool lanolin. Who knew? Yeah. All right. All right. Here's someone who goes under the term inner dimensions. My D-dimer is high thanks to COVID. Is there any contraindication of me taking K2? I don't know. No, I would say absolutely not. No. All right. And Beth Jackson wants to know, at what age should a person start taking vitamin D3? My friend is 18 and she is very dark skinned. Should she start taking it? Start taking it at birth. Uh, really? Often the nursing children, uh, the nursing mothers do not have vitamin D. They should be taking uh, 2,000 to 4,000 IU per day to make sure they have enough native vitamin D that's not uh, processed in their breast milk. So uh, in Europe, uh, uh, a lot of the infants are given 400 IU per day or 1,000. In fact, there was a study in Finland. They used to give 2,000 IU per day to the infants to one year of age. And they had very low rates of type 1 diabetes. Then they said, oh, 2,000 too much. Let's give them 1,000. And the type 1 diabetes rates went up and then went into lower and lower. You need vitamin D at all ages. Uh, it helps growth. It helps um, uh, um, uh, development. Uh, anybody who's thinking about getting pregnant, um, uh, both men and uh, women in terms of reproduction, anybody who is pregnant really needs to have high doses of vitamin D because uh, the, the, the fetal development is a, a relate, really relies on gene expression and you need the vitamin D to help tell the genes how to develop properly. There's an interesting question from Kelly Holmes. Uh, who says, when we wash our hair, do we wash vitamin D away? No. In fact, hair is being used to measure long-term vitamin D levels. It's sort of like a tape recorder. It's embedded in the, in the hair. Well, you don't strikes, wash it off your skin either. 
if they're manufacturing it from the lanolin in the sheep, which is on the hair of the sheep, right? So it's but the sheep see the sheep have so little skin exposed, they might be licking their 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 skin their their fur to get the the the, the lanolin. Uh, we're not licking our hair. <laughs> Mostly no. This is okay. Um, all right. Here's Julie Westhoff wants to know: Can you cure diabetes increasing by increasing vitamin D? You know, you can help reduce insulin resistance. But the best way to cure diabetes is to stop eating meat and go to a low-fat vegan diet and, and um, look at my Alzheimer's paper. And, and the diet for preventing Alzheimer's is very similar to the diet for preventing and reversing diabetes. And I had a the co-author in my this book, Embrace the Sun, Mark Sorensen, had a career in inviting people in for seminars on a low-fat vegan diet. He'd take people on um, insulin, take people with clogged arteries. He showed them how to clear their arteries, how to reduce their insulin dependence, and lead a healthy life by changing diet. So vitamin D can help, but it's really you've got to stop whatever is causing inflammation, stop what is ever causing the uh, 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 insulin resistance. Paul, the other week we had someone on who was saying, "You want the meats? You want you know you're curing diabetes by going back to the." caveman diet where you're basically going you're eating the meat it's not the it's not the lard that's killing you it's the other junk that's in there the wheat and everything else what do you say what do you say to that so betsy i think it's what we've said before is a real food diet you want to have a diet made up of real food not synthetic food you want to prevent processed foods with high blood glucose um goes a long way and then supplements like vitamin D and berberine uh, help. But you're not going to cure diabetes with vitamin D alone. You have to, you have to change your diet. You have to have a, a, a cleaner diet with, with um, less processed food. But the meat versus the no meat, we're, that, that's a toss-up. We're not sure. Well, you know. Mike, uh, say Walter Willett published a, an article six, two weeks ago in which he said that eating meat is about a 46% increased risk of diabetes. And then he got hit with the disinformation playbook from Nina Teicholz, who, who said that he's a vegan, he's just a vegan saying everybody else should be a vegan as well. Okay, here we have, um, <clears throat> all right. Sandra Hayes asks, can diet and exercise or any other type of regimen help with Alzheimer's when you received an APO gene from both parents. Um, yes, if you have the epsilon 4, uh, which is a big risk factor, it, it greatly increases your risk of, of Alzheimer's. What, what the epsilon 4 does is it helps convert all excess food into fat to store. And that's very advantageous for hunter-gatherer populations like in Africa, the Inuit, the Pelin, and so on. But they would eat a feast when they had food, store it, and then slowly use it up until they had the next feast. So uh, I think a lot of people with AP Epsilon 4 probably become obese because they don't realize that it's helping to store the excess food. So the, I think one of the things they ought to do is, is really make sure they're not putting on too much weight, but then go back to a, a good, well-balanced, uh, real food diet. All right, we have... One more that I think is important, and then we'll have to wrap it up because we're coming to the top of the hour. Sandra Hayes says, um, I'm sorry, this is um, Paula Teague. Should vitamin D be taken with healthy fats for best absorption? No. Um, orange juice is a, can be taken with, with um, which has vitamin D in it. Um, beer used to be sold with vitamin D. Um, You've got to have some fat in your your system, but the 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 I mean you've got to eat fat during the day. It doesn't have to be right with the, with the vitamin D. Well, there is so much interesting, so much interest here. Um, but basically, it sounds like we can take all the vitamin D we want, and we probably need a lot more than we're taking. Right. And the vitamin D three happily is inexpensive uh, to to get, and we don't have to worry about the brand. It seems to be reliable wherever we get it. This is this is encouraging, but it certainly can do a lot of 
give a lot of benefit. It's so, Doctor Grant, do you, do you think one should increase one's intake of D three in winter when you're more predisposed to respiratory infections and influenza, or doesn't it really matter? Yes, I think you should take more in winter than in summer. Because, um, um, yes. Well, we thank you very much. We thank you so much for presenting the disinformation playbook to Pierre when we desperately needed it. And we thank you for all the work that you've done on vitamin D. And we may have to discuss this again. You just never know. It's such an interesting topic. And it's uh, it's big. It's covering cancer. It's covering so many areas that are so important. And um, Betsy, I think the bottom line is it's safe. It's cheap. It has no side effects. That everybody should be taking vitamin D. I think that that that's the bottom line. It reduces your risk of cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, uh, respiratory tract infections. Certainly, it will reduce your severity of COVID. So there, and it's it's exceedingly cheap. So there really is no reason that people shouldn't be taking vitamin D. But I think that's the reason the healthcare agencies don't want you to take it because um, they don't want you to be healthy. Uh, they're not in the health business, they're in the disease business. You know, Bill, you know, I've, I've often thought from early on that a proper public health response would have been almost like a national campaign with billboards you know, uh, imploring people to go check their vitamin D levels, you know, provide some guidance around supplementation, depending on what your level is. Did any country or public health ministry around the world do that? The United States did in the 1930s, even stamps so to get out in the sun, but they realized the error of their ways. <laughs> and, and not in a good way, you mean, the error of their ways, meaning uh, they got into trouble. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I appreciate you coming on and uh, your wealth of knowledge on vitamin D is excellent. I, I think you answered a lot of the, the questions are very good, by the way. And I, I think uh, it was really good to to check it against an expert and, uh, and, and Paul's comments were excellent. It's just let's keep it simple and make sure everyone's on vitamin D and uh, it's going to assure you a, a better health level. Well, I'm really pleased with what FLCCC has done the last two or three years. And I wish you more successes in getting the word out and getting health. Thank health, you. Uh, health, uh, a good word instead of a bad word. We keep trying. We keep trying. <laughs> We've got our doctors all over the globe telling, uh, telling the truth. And so, and we keep trying to do it here. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for helping us out in the beginning. And thank you doctors for sharing your time with our audience here uh, once again. And I have a few comments, a few announcements for folks. Uh, so stay tuned right now. Ah, yes, look at that. The educational conference is coming up and we are, you know, we are just so glad that uh, all of you could be here with us for today, but you want to know about this third conference taking place February 2nd to 4th, Phoenix, Arizona. This will be a little bit different than the past two. This theme is restoring the doctor-patient relationship. And it's being created for both practitioners and concerned citizens alike. Early bird registration is open now. So visit flccc.net forward slash conference to learn more and save your seat. And please, please, please make sure to share this with your fellow healthcare practitioners, your family, and your friends. Now then next week. Coming up a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. One extra plug on that. Oh, so please. You know, quite a few of our followers came to um, either our first one or two. And, um, you know, our first two were really centered on approaching what is a catastrophe, which is spike protein related disease or induced disease, in particular, long COVID, long vax. Um, that is still a, a focus, but we want people to be aware that, you know, as we move away from COVID, we're still really focused on still our core interest because it, it, it continues to be a major public health issue. Um, as, especially the, uh, you know, the, these chronic syndromes. But we, we also want to try to, you know, move on and continue being a resource and a place for people to come for good, unbiased, unconflicted, objective, 
health information. We don't take money from pharma. And and, and we, we just wanted to be a safe place to really discuss health issues in, a, in an unbiased way and 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 for similar-minded people uh, to seek out good, accurate information uh, that's not polluted uh, with financial interests, and and I we want to build a community going forward, and and I think um, you know quite a bit of that conference will be on how that's going to happen and what our ideas are, and um, uh, we we kind of welcome everyone to come. It's it's not only about teaching doctors how to treat these uh, spike protein induced diseases, but really how we can uh, build build a place uh, to protect and promote and teach, um, you know, um, health actions uh, going forward. And so um, I, I, we invite everyone. It's about doctors helping patients to have good health, right? Yep. That's, and in, in all areas, in all areas. Well, yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. And by the way, coming up a bit sooner, next week, next week, we have... Uh, a webinar in which we are going to welcome Dr. Teresa Long and Dr. Pete Chambers for a very important discussion all about mRNA vaccines and the military. You know, this is this is Veterans Day coming up, and so we focus on the, the all of the wonderful sacrifices, uh, the difficult things, but all of all that the military has done for us. And we hope that you can join us here from wherever you will be next Wednesday. We will also have a related FLCCC Twitter space uh, on Twitter or X uh, on military vaccine mandates and impacts. That will be on November 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You'll get more information on that as, as the time gets closer. But for now, please mark your calendars. And now then, here's something interesting. Speaking of mRNA shots, our friends at React 19, in partnership with the University of Maryland at Baltimore, are beginning a new patient-led research collaboration about COVID-19 vaccine adverse events. The goal of the study is to help us understand the many aspects of vaccine injury, to better identify symptom clusters, and to help find effective tests and treatments, thus helping both injured individuals and the scientific community as a whole. Recruitment is open now. So if you or someone you know has experienced post-vaccine symptoms and you want to learn more or register to be part of this important study, please visit www.react19.org forward slash study. Okay, our doctors, our FLCCC doctors, continue to be oh so busy, and we have new episodes to share with you. Dr. Bean's latest long story short shares a study demonstrating that vaccination in long COVID patients causes a flare-up of the immune system. And Dr. Salibi's newest whole body health discusses bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, or BHRT, and explains how important balanced hormones are in the overall health of both men and women. You can watch these now on our website at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean and forward slash whole body health, respectively, or find them on our FLCCC Alliance Rumble and Odyssey channels. Ah, guides. We have another new guide up too, all about how to be your own research detective, complete with our own Dr. Bean's detective on the front cover there. And it was created to help the reader learn how to properly analyze research and how to more easily spot conflicts of interest and other telling issues in research papers. Very important information, especially given the disinformation playbook we discussed earlier this evening. And in case you missed last week's new Understanding COVID-19 Vaccines Guide, make sure to read and download that one as well. Both can be found on our website, flccc.net, under the Tools and Guides tab or at the link on the screen. And with that, let's bring on our nurses, our nurses who have been given out all kinds of good information tonight. We have Christina, and now she's our, you know, CRNA, and and Samantha, our RN. They've been, I bet you were getting lots of questions tonight. How did it go? Busy. It was very busy. We had a lot of repeated questions. 
I just wanted to remind our viewers that we have lots of good information in our tools and guides section. And we have um, the information on vitamin D and K2 in our treatment guidelines. So our followers can go to our guides and review that information with charts. And they can also read more about nutraceuticals and vitamin D in our guides and also brand suggestions. So go explore those pages on our website and learn more about it. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, we our nurses are uh, always there oh, and always on top of it. So thank you so much for the time that you put in here answering questions. And we, with that, um, thanking all of you, by the way, for you know, things that you do that, that help make all of this possible. Last but not least, we we have to thank everyone. You, you know, you have inspired and continue to inspire our FLCCC family uh, for your continued motivation and support, for helping us do what we do, for helping us reach more people, for helping us save more lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we'll see you next week. Um, we have that program on the military and the vaccine programs. Um, but we're going to be closing out with our most recent conference video, which came from our conference in the spring of this year, 2023. We expect to have a new video coming out for you next week. We're hard at work doing that. But in the meantime, enjoy this one and understand why people just love to come to these. And we hope we'll see you in Phoenix. Good night. The camaraderie here is just fantastic. The love that, that these practitioners and non-practitioners have for each other, that is so alive here, it's off the scale. So it's exciting just to realize that there's so many people uh, earnestly and eagerly working on behalf of the patient to bring the best information forward. What FLCCC is doing is much, much bigger than just a virus. This is the battle to try to restore medicine to its original purpose. I'm grateful for those who have stepped up to educate us and for us to just learn from each other. I'm, I'm very energized and happy to learn and be part of the fight with putting patients first because that's what it's all about. This is my favorite conference I've ever been to and I've been practicing for, you know, 25 years. Yeah, I, I highly recommend. I think every single healthcare practitioner should come to this conference. You know, we take our cues from each other. So the value of joining together uh, at an event like this is that, is that people can step out a little farther. That encourages other people to also step out a little farther. And so we create a culture and a new normal of more radical or more innovative thought.